views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. and podcast documenting legalized slavery and human trafficking that is global but particularly atrocious in the United States you are tuned in to New Abolitionist Radio the United States is the home of the world's largest prison population containing the world's largest captor labor force in human commodities Max is still on vacation but he's preparing along with his family for Hurricane Irma Hope that you all who are projected to be in the path for this Category 5 hurricane, which has been described as possibly the strongest hurricane on record coming off the Atlantic coast. So if you're on, you might as well say the southeast coast of the United States, please get prepared. Do what you can. Um, now, this, again, we have a number of news stories like we share every Weekend, which is part of the documentation process. People don't know, but you can use news stories, investigative journalism to bring uh, lawsuits and complaints against any element of USA Inc. So we will definitely share our news stories because we do have some that are of importance. And we'll also cover our regular segments, but we'll mix them up throughout the broadcast, do something a little different. Hope Max don't mind, but we'll do something a little different. We'll mix them up throughout the two-hour broadcast to ensure we make time for them all. You can, of course, uh, feel free to call in with your questions or comments. The telephone number is 1-866-510-9025. That's 866 if you go to uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network, you'll find a whole lot of international numbers, so it'll be toll-free as this network does have a global audience. You can also call in via a phone. Uber Conference even has an app for the smartphone, so again, it, it shouldn't cost you a lot of money. Um, it, it should be free for you to participate with your questions or your comments. Just a quick rundown of our regular segments up for tonight. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Frederick Clay. He was wrongfully convicted of killing a Boston cab driver and was just recently released this past Tuesday. 
in the segment for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion, I'm going to uh, highlight a story in a manner that I think is a first. But um, obviously people have been documenting this history, so I'm not saying I'm the first to document it, but it's the first time on New Abolitionist Radio with this being a new segment, again, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion, that we focused on rebellions that occurred on the ships uh, that were sending people to all points among in the world that were practicing slavery. That could be South America, North America, Australia, all over the place. So wherever you had Europeans who were using slave labor where they were importing that, that labor and many, 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 many revolts more than I think uh, we are aware of occurred on those ships. So that's a rebellion. And some of them were successful. I know a lot of people know about Amistad. So yeah, that is a a ship rebellion, a revolt uh, to take over the ship that has been documented and well publicized. But there are many more Amistads. All right, many more Amistads. And so tonight uh, we'll focus on the ship Adventure Uh, which was based in uh, the colonies and we'll be remembering just one of the many revolts against slavery that occurred on ships. Our abolitionist in profile is Benjamin Lay. He was born 1681 in England and he transitioned on February the 8th, 1759 in Abingdon, Pennsylvania. And this guy was known as a ferocious abolitionist. I mean, they ran him out of the Caribbean. He was so ferocious with his criticism um, towards uh, people who were practicing slavery. So we want to profile Benjamin Lay tonight. And, of course, our segment on the Constitution and you, uh, yourself, brother yourself, Hassan will be taking a look at a story coming out of the state of Oregon. Oregon governor... Uh, just recently signed a gun confiscation law which violates the second and 14th amendment we are going to get that perspective on the constitution from yourself and of course uh, you the listening audience is always welcome to weigh in with your knowledge your information and your perspectives again that is 866-510-9025 is our toll free number or you can call 704-802-5056 for, that's, uh, for those in North Carolina. Or you can call in with our web phone and also post questions through the chat. But please, find your international toll number. Uh, again, we have a global audience, and we know the abolitionist movement is a global movement, just like it has been in the past. So again, giving a shout out to the Parthis family as they prepare for Hurricane Irma. I do want to welcome in our guest host for tonight, and that would be Brother Yusef Hassan, as well as Otis Griffin. Um, guys, uh, let me give you about a minute to each give your opening thoughts on tonight's broadcast. Uh, let's go with you first, Otis. Uh, Hello, and uh, once again, I'd like to say I'm surprised that Max had as much confidence in me. I think he got a good lineup on some current stories that are going to open people's mind to the fact that slavery never ended, and we need to do something about it. Push for abolishment of the exception clause with no 
stopping, get it done. We need to get it done as soon as possible. Thank you and greetings to you, Otis. Uh, Brother Yousef, welcome in. What's on your mind? Yes, sir. Uh, Peace and blessings to everyone listening. Uh, It's an honor and a pleasure to, you know, sit in as a guest host. You know, my thoughts and prayers go out to all of the people, you know, in Houston, you know, in the Caribbean, you know, in along Florida and the eastern coast, you know, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with them. You know, we had our own issues out here in California with the uh, fires. You know, my family wasn't affected, but, you know, we did smell smoke for quite some time. So, you know, with this broadcast, you know, we still keep all of those people in mind. And especially, you know, uh, the brothers and sisters incarcerated in Houston, you know, we'll we'll touch on some of the stories that we've been hearing, you know, within this broadcast. But, you know, thoughts and prayers are out to them as well. Most certainly, most certainly. So some of the headlines that we'll be going over. But like I said, I was going to do something different and we will be mixing up the segments. But first, we want to go with one of our first stories that each of us as a host will will share um, some excerpts from. And Otis, if you want to start us off, can you take that story from the New York Daily News? 21 inmates get 378 grand after eating tainted meatloaf at Rikers. Terrible story coming out of... New York, just let me know when you get there. Um, I, you know, I don't know how I feel about. I have mixed feelings when it comes to uh, media. Um, I've seen some garbage come out of the New York Daily News, but I also seen some consistent reporting on elements of 21st century slavery and human trafficking that's occurring in the in the city. And I guess the most well-known name associated with the New York Daily News is Sean King, uh, who writes frequently about these issues, although I don't think he's yet to declare himself as an abolitionist, or, uh, but I do believe he may have written about the 13th Amendment. My memory isn't serving me correctly right now. Otis, are you there? I tried to pull it up. I had I read over it. Now I can't find it. So. Okay. Um, if you can get access to, and I'll go ahead and post this in the chat. I hope it don't kick you out if you click on it. It kicks me out, uh, Otis. Um, but I got a split screen. Yeah. Um, there, uh, the community dot Black Talk Radio for New Abolitionist Radio. Matter of fact, let me go ahead and post this entire thread to our Facebook page, New Abolitionist. Radio. I, I know Max uh, likes to share story by story on the on the thread, but I have much more going on um, and stuff I have to multitask on. So I will post the thread, which is public in btrcommunity.com. I will post that to New Abolitionist Radio. Anybody can access it. And there you will find all the stories we hope to share with you, including our regular segments. Uh, with the links to access those stories. You still having trouble, Otis? I'm bringing it up now. Okay. And let me go ahead and post that for 
our listeners and those people who follow the page for information, New Abolitionist Radio, on Facebook, which over the Are years... Um, am I ready? Yes. Yes. Go ahead, Otis. Take it away. Okay. It says uh, 21 inmates get 378 grand after eating tainted meatloaf at Rikers Island. This comes from a 2015 incident. And before I get into reading it, I like to say it seems like they don't mind paying lawsuits and letting lawyers and the rest of these organizations make money. They don't want to give black men jobs when you're out here free, but you can find a job or you can get abused and get a payout if you're making money for GEO and uh, Core Civic. The most expensive meatloaf ever served on Rikers Island came with a hard-to-swallow $378,000 tab for the city. 21 inmates settled a federal lawsuit with the city after charging tainted lunch caused vomiting, diarrhea, bleeding, fainting among un among the captive diners. The city, eager to get the case off its plate, will serve up $17,650 to 20 plaintiffs, $25,000 to one of the victims. The Brooklyn Federal Court lawsuit alleged meatloaf cooked up at the Anna M. Cross Center contained a special ingredient, bluish-green pellets of rat poison. Days after the lawsuit was filed, city officials admitted seeing the blue and green specks, but a confession to serving the squalid meat uh, denied. They won't do that. The settlement came without an admission of guilt from the city. We couldn't determine conclusively how this unusual incident occurred, and it continued to litigate would not have been in the city's best interest. So the city admits that they fed them contaminated food but they won't admit that they had any involvement or responsibility for it. The inmates in this lawsuit charged the malevolent meat. Oh, Otis, hold up for meat. a minute, Otis. Yes. I'm sorry. Let me interject there. How can you, now, can you repeat that last paragraph that you just read? Because something didn't jive right um, in, in the, that word usage. What did you say they admit to what? They won't do that. The settlement came without an admission of guilt from the city. We couldn't determine conclusively how this unusual incident occurred, and continuing to litigate would not have been in the city's interest, said a city law department spokeswoman. They don't know how it occurred. They're but wait a minute, though, Aldis. In order for you to pay some somebody some money, I heard an acknowledgement that they gave the food to the inmates. So if you gave them the tainted food, po uh, poison food, then how can you not admit to guilt? You already did when you said you gave them the food. I I'm confused here, but I know these what, things it, are meant to yeah, be what, what they what they, try, what they try to do is separate themselves from the responsibility of it. It's sort of like, I gave them meat, but we didn't know the meat was tainted. They're trying to say it that way. Okay, gotcha. Oh, without a doubt, it says days after the lawsuit was filed, city officials admitted seeing the blue and green specks. But a confession to serving the squalid slices of meatloaf is a question mark. They have no idea why it was served with unusual green and blue specks. Right, they, they, know what, they, they know why it was served. 
they know exactly why it was served. They served it because it's being served to inmates, and they figure no one's going to care about it because it's right. inmates, and you can do whatever you want to do to them. That's why they did it. Well, the question to me, back. though, is where... I, I, I what, what, before you, before you, before yeah. you go any further, I'm going to tell you, I went back to a correspondent article from 2015, and it says... A top correction department official confirmed Wednesday that meatloaf served to inmates at Rikers Island Jail last week contained green and blue specks, but it remains a mystery what the substance is or how it got in the food. Nineteen inmates uh, alleged in a lawsuit that they were sickened by rat poison. The inmates were locked down in their cells on that day, March the 3rd, as a result mm-hmm. of an earlier sexual assault on a female guard by an inmate. But the Assistant Commissioner for Environmental Health, Patricia Finney, stated in a sworn affidavit that nothing in the food pantry or kitchen appeared similar to the substance. I also looked at rodent sides in the facility's exterminator shop, and none of the rodent sides matched the substance on the foods, Finney stated, in papers submitted in the Brooklyn Federal Court. Uh, I'll read one other paragraph. Judge Rosalind Moskoff has ordered a hearing Thursday to determine whether an emergency court order is necessary to provide follow-up medical testing of the inmates and analysis by independent laboratory of the meatloaf samples, which some inmates are secretly hoarding. So unless those men had kept the meatloaf, there would be no evidence to to come to what we've come to two years later. Right. So here's my issue. All right. Now, just if anybody's ever worked in a fast food restaurant and seen how they take deliveries, whether it's frozen meat and produce, like, you know, for the salad bar or what, whatever. So it, it's brought in, it's delivered in, in any type of restaurant. So same thing with a prison plantation. They have a kitchen. They have to have deliveries of the food. The food, unless the food, like on some prison plantations, might be grown um, by the prisoners and consumed by the prisoners. Uh, I do know that that has occurred. But for the ones where you are getting food from the outside, you're getting from them from contractors. Then you know who you contracted for this meat. And mm-hmm. so you should have opened up an investigation that's the first place that you look the the food obviously could have been tainted at the source and and so you you do an investigation and none of that what you read Otis that I hear there was an investigation uh, also I'm thinking about uh, what do they call those people that go around and inspect uh, restaurants and what have you, the food people, and, and they expect it for cleanliness, or if you report that, uh, anybody know what they're called? Yeah, health, health, and, health yeah, inspectors. Health inspector. There was a local health inspector involved in this. I'm not sure, but I, you would think that prison kitchens are subject to health inspections as well, okay? I would think that common sense, but again, all sense ain't common, and and then we're all, we are talking about slavery, so they could be totally right. exempt. So, but you would then send a health inspector to your contractor for that meat, and then you determine. And I'm also sure everybody didn't eat all the meat. 
that I didn't hear that, I'm sure it might have been some left over. I mean, if you was really concerned, mm-hmm. I'm sure it was some that you could have baggaged up and tested these blue specks or whatever was in the food, this foreign uh, material in the food. So what I've just heard is a whitewashing and admission of guilt without technically admitting to guilt. Uh, we've seen these with the banks uh, who launder drug money and they get what's called a deferred prosecution. And it's all to avoid putting this in the criminal courts and subjecting them to modern day slavery. But they don't admit to any kind of guilt or acknowledgement of guilt, but we're going to pay this money. In the case of the, U- of the banks, they pay huge fines. Not enough to total their profits that they made from laundering the drug money. But so that's what we see going on here that these inmates are being compensated this money to make it go away, basically. So I, I, it was a total whitewashing, in my opinion, fellas. Uh, There's no doubt. I, I told you I went back and looked at some adjoining articles, and it says Feeney said she couldn't find a match when she searched the jail's extermination shop for rat poisoning that matched the one described by the inmates. But the inmates' lawyer, Squalisi, had the entree analyzed. The lab report found rotafococum, an an anticoagulant marketed as rodent side. But the Department of Investigation did its own review and couldn't point to definitive evidence the inmates were poisoned. The department said it was unsubstantiated to allege that the Department of Corrections staff put rat poison in the child. The report was sealed by a judge while the meatloaf litigation kept percolating. So you're probably right, Scotty. The evidence that was there was sealed by the judge. So they'll never know what they actually had. But the lawyer had it done on a separate test and it proved to be a rodent side. Rodenticide, right. I guess you would yeah. call it. Well, I tell you, man, and then these stories are all too common. It's not the first poisoning I've heard of and won't be the last. So we're going to go into one of our regular segments. And why I do that, that'll give uh, yourself an opportunity because there's a story that he felt was very important that we need to share in the context of the school to prison pipeline. And that's the, Yousef, that's the story about the Alabama school board member who is considering, oh you got that. Let me, let me, let me pull that one up. Yeah. So, so while you pulling that up, I'm going to go into our next, uh, one of our regular feature segments and I'm going to go ahead and go into our abolitionist and profile. Uh, let me let me see. I'm I'm getting some background noise off of someone. While you pull that up, you sell. Um, you know I'm gonna go ahead and mute you, but I'll bring you back on for for uh, that story. All right. So we want we uh, always want to honor uh, those abolitionists who came before us, and we don't. It's so many of them. We are not gonna know all their names, but at least. For the five years that we've been broadcasting New Abolitionist Radio, we've tried to document those names we come across. And sometimes we we do the same people more than once over the five years, but every once in a while we'll come across one that we had not ever heard before. And that is the case uh, tonight. So let me go ahead and get this segment started. 
our abolitionist in profile tonight is uh, Benjamin Lay. Let me give you the short version of Mr. Lay. Very impressed with uh, his tenacity. So our abolitionist in profile is Benjamin Lay. He was born in 1681 in Colchester, England. He died in February on February 8, 1759, in Abingdon, Pennsylvania. In 1710, at the age of 33, he moved to Barbados as a merchant. But his abolition principles, fueled by his Quaker radicalism, became obnoxious to people who lived there. So he moved to Abington, Pennsylvania in the United States. So it, it, he didn't just move because those people uh, found him to be obnoxious in his protest and verbal protest to them practicing slavery. Uh, they probably was very terroristic towards him and he decided to move, I, I, I believe is what really happened. And he is described in Abington. Uh, he was one Abington, Pennsylvania. Abington, I'm, I got two different spellings here. He was one of the earliest and most zealous opponents of slavery. So we're talking about early, late 1600s, early 1700s. Lay was barely over four feet tall and wore clothes that he made himself. He was a hunchback with a projecting chest. Wow. And his arms were almost longer than his legs. Wow, man, this guy, you should make a movie about him. He did not believe that humans were superior to non-human animals and created his own clothes to boycott the slave labor industry. He would wear nothing nor eat anything made from the loss of animal life or provided by a degree of slave labor. He was distinguished less for his eccentricities than for, uh, for his philanthropy. He published over 200 pamphlets, media, very important, most of which were in passion polemics against various social institutions of the time, particularly slavery, capital punishment, the prison system, the moneyed Pennsylvania Quaker elite, and refusing to participate in what he described in his tracks as a degraded, hypocritical, tyrannical, and even demonic society. Hey, man, this guy sounds like a guy after Max's heart. I tell you, Lay was committed to a lifestyle of almost complete self-sustenance. Dwelling in a cottage in Pennsylvania, in the Pennsylvania countryside, he grew his own food and made his own clothes. He first began advocating for anti-slavery when in Barbados he saw an enslaved man commit suicide. Man, that's an act of rebellion right there. Rather than be hit again by his owner. His passionate uh, in enmity of slavery was partially fueled by his Quaker beliefs. Lay made several dramatic demonstrations against the practice. He once stood outside a Quaker meeting in the winter with no coat and at least one foot bare and in the snow. When a passerby said, uh, expressed concern for his health, he said that slaves were made to work outdoors in the winter dressed as he was. 
On another occasion, he kidnapped the child of slaveholders temporarily to show them how Africans felt when their relatives were sold overseas. The most notable act occurred at the 1738 Philadelphia Yearly Meeting of Quakers. Dressed as a soldier, he concluded a diatribe against slavery, quoting the Bible saying that all men should be equal under God. And by plunging a sword into a Bible containing a bladder of blood red pulpberry juice, which he spattered over those nearby. Man, he had Peter beat by hundreds of years. He, he was throwing the blood of slaves on these people. His death and, and legacy. Benjamin Lay died in Abington, Pennsylvania in 1759. His legacy continued to inspire the abolitionist movement for generations throughout the early and mid-19th century. It was common for abolitionist Quakers to keep pictures of Lay in their homes. Benjamin Lay was buried in the Abington Friends Meeting Graveyard located at Abington Friends School in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. And new abolitionist radio salutes Benjamin Lay. Salute. Salute. Why don't we see him in the history books? Man, they should. Hey, hey, man, this is the making for a very based on real life story dramatic film. Wow. I've never heard of him, and I've done some digging. I mean, not extensively, but I've looked around enough. I should have come across that one. Hey, he was. Wow. <laughs> oh, man, he was like, uh, he, he wasn't pulling no punches. I mean, he was throwing. Uh, juice on them that look like blood staining their clothes with the blood of slaves, man, or the victims of slavery. This guy, man, wow, he is—he is to be respected and honored among the abolitionist ancestors. Again, Benjamin Lay, and this guy was was basically a, a hunchback dwarf. Exactly, and, and a vegan. The, the, he—he he wasn't eating anything that you had to slaughter. He grew his own food. Mm-mm. Uh, Hassan, you have any comments, or are you ready to go into your segment? Uh, hit us with the bottom of the hour, and then we can we can jump right into that afterwards. Okay. All right. Well, we'll take a short station identification break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. We broadcast every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, going up until about uh, 9.55, almost two hours, so an hour and 55 minutes. Again, coming on later tonight is Mind, Body, and Spirit Radio. I don't know if I gave the date, so those who's listening later will know the date and know not to call in. (laughs) So today's date is September the 6th, 2017, and it is 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And just to keep reminding the Black Talk Radio Network listeners, prepare for Hurricane Irma. She's a Category 5 and she don't seem to be playing. She's already leveled a number of uh, Caribbean islands. All right, we'll be back on the other side.
this is Sean Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio on this Wednesday night, September the 6th, 2017. Just a couple of weeks past the historic Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March that occurred on Washington, D.C. Uh, please check out in our archives the review of the march where we had uh, many modern-day abolitionists who called in from all over the country and shared their experience uh, either in Washington, D.C. or at a sister rally in solidarity at any other 16 to 20 other cities that participated. All right, so I want to toss it back to yourself. Uh, yourself, you brought up this story that you wanted to share with everyone tonight about uh, this lady who basically is saying, hey, let's throw all these these children who have learning disabilities, let's institutionalize them. Let's let's separate them from the other children. Let's single them out and put them all together because they bringing down these other children. And so, you know, we want to toss them to the side and we want to detain them or institutionalize them or, as uh, some people would say, enslave them. You know, brother, you right. You, you hit it right where I'm going with it because the article is entitled "Alabama School Board Member Considers Institutionalization from Special Ed Students." It's a short article. I'm going to read it really quick. It says, "Alabama State Board of Education Member Ella Bell wants to know why we can't force special needs children." into an institution in an effort to help improve test scores in Alabama's public schools? That might be a reasonable question from someone who hasn't served on SBOE for more than a decade and a half. Under federal law, students with disabilities should have the opportunity to be educated in the same environment as their peers to the greatest extent appropriate. It's a practice commonly referred to as least restrictive environment. Is a quote, it is against the law for us to establish perhaps an academy on special education or something on that order. So that our, she's saying, is it against the law? So that our scores that are already not that good would not be further cut down by special ed test scores involved. When Bell's colleagues mentioned LRE, she didn't seem to understand. It doesn't matter about that. We can make it the least restrictive environment, she said. I'm trying to see if we can move them out. So when an SBOE member doesn't seem to have a real grasp of such an important aspect of public education, we have a problem. I looked up the Alabama Department of Education's comprehensive facts, frequently asked questions on the issue in about two seconds. If Bellick bothered to even a little if, if Bell had bothered to be even a little bit curious, she would have discovered the answers, including how individual, my, my tongue is all over the place, individualized education plans for students' approach assessment. She quit it and bothered to look for answers before attending the meeting. State Superintendent Michael Sitans noted that even students with challenges similar to theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking will be considered special needs. 
Bell responded, I'm just saying those who have special needs are truly not folks like Hawking. Stephen said, it's almost not fair for LAMP, which stands for Loveless Academic Magnet Program, is a school in Montgomery, and them not to have special ed folk to bring them down. Bell doesn't seem to have a clue about Alabama's public education system for special needs students, but she is pretty concerned that those students bring down the rest. Alabama has a process for building out IEPs consistent with LRE requirements. The underlying idea is that our students are better off in the classroom together. The idea that a SBOE member would even seriously ask the question about returning to a practice of institutionalization demonstrates a tragic lack of knowledge and thoughtfulness. The way we balance the needs of students isn't easy, but it's a testament about the kind of state we want to be. And that's pretty much the end of the topic at that point. So, <laughs> first of all, Ella, this, this, this woman, Ella Bell, is a black woman, for those of you, you know, just listening. They can't see the photo of her. And we see, we, we can equate this to, you know, the 13th Amendment, you know, to where we can say, we know that once they put in the exception clause as to what constitutes a crime, then they can just start making up this is a crime and that is a crime. So the same thing goes with this type of program, because this is how it starts. You know, they first say special needs. Well, what actually is special needs? You know, because special needs doesn't necessarily mean learning disability, and that's why the... Uh, trying to, the state superintendent said, well, Stephen Hawking is someone with special needs. You know, for those that are familiar with him, he's the, you know, world-renowned uh, theoretical physicist. He's special needs. So that means that you would send him off to that school. You know, so they would just start reclassifying everyone as special needs, and it's a way to institutionalize, and then you know what happens with inst institutionalization, you know. You bring in some private company dealing with it, and then there's going to be, you know, all the corruption that goes along with it, you know. And so what they've been doing with a lot of students, and this is going on all over the place, you know, where they're starting to criminalize special needs persons all throughout the country to where, you know, what used to be considered just like, you know, just someone acting up in class is now, you know, looked at some type of antisocial behavior that needs to be criminalized. And this is what, what was being done with the school-to-prison pipeline, that things such as just getting into a fight or forgetting your homework or burping in class, you know, where we had the one child that was actually arrested for that. So these are all the types of students they were put in these programs. You know, not necessarily saying that they have any type of learning disability or special needs, but they can classify them as such. So it, it opens the door. They, you know, they sneak it in. They do everything to sneak it in. And if she wasn't challenged, she would have gotten away with it. Because they clearly outlined that it has to be a, a, the least restrictive environment. And then she had the nerve to say, or the goal to actually say, well, we can institutionalize them but still make it the least restrictive, you know, when you can't even have that go hand in hand, 
you know, that you're, you're in an institution, but it's, it's not restrictive, when that in itself, the institution itself is what makes it restrictive. So that article just jumped right out at me because, you know, when we speak of the Hegelian dialectic, something that I speak on all the time about problem, reaction, solution, see, you know, they want to bring out an end result. They want to be able to enslave as many people as they possibly can, and they have to come up with creative ways of doing it to make it socially acceptable. So under the guise of we can raise our test scores and we can get rid of these special needs students. They're the ones really messing up the scores in the schools. And while we at it, so why they, don't we just also go ahead and sterilize them so they don't produce no more uh, special needs children? Because they might, you know, you a, know special, a special needs boy and, 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 might get with a special know, needs girl. And will come up with that thought. Well, it's already because been done before, though. Yourself, it's already exactly. done before. That's the Nazi's exactly. eugenic pro, pro, eugenics program. See, a lot That's of people, true. when Absolutely. we talk about uh, Germany, the focus really is put on the 6 million Jews, but the Nazis killed over 11 million people, and among those they targeted is people who would be classified as special needs. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's and that's how they do. You know, you start with a marginalized portion of the society. Someone, you know, people's not really going to care because most most people don't care about special needs students other than their families. I mean, that's that's real talk because you don't really hear anyone talking about special needs students other than their families. Very rarely. I mean, so it's basically just them, saying, can... yeah, Otis wants, to, Otis wants to chime in, too, and we want to try to keep it moving because uh, we I, got a lot of segments I'll to cover. Quick. But Otis, hold I'll up, be... Otis, before, uh, before you go there, I want to connect it to slavery right quick because, yeah, the Nazis did it, but the Nazis, from my research, also came here and studied how the U.S. government was treating black people and indigenous people. And, and what have you but a, a, a thought comes to my mind I bet you didn't too many special needs children survive during the period of, of slavery on the plantation prior to 1865 I bet you they was killing doggone special needs children as soon as they was born but anyway I mean it's just it's just again I want to stress this and, and let Otis chime in but this is why I cannot allow myself to think of the new abolitionist movement in color-coded terms, because as you self-pointed out, this was a black woman. Um, I've heard of another black woman openly advocate for black people to get their money, pool their money and invest in private prisons and, and, and make some money off of all these people Donald Trump finna lock up, the immigrants and what have you. And also, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised to find out that I'm not saying there's there's no evidence that I've heard to suggest this, but this is something to keep on the radar and a question to ask. I wouldn't be surprised if a group like the GEO group or, or Core Civic, formerly known as CCA, is pushing a program like this because what, what do they are in the business of? Detaining human bodies, putting them in facilities Absolutely. and what have you. Absolutely. That's like the final piece. That would have been the final piece that I was going to mention that you know that's 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 like the uh, 
you know, the yeah, the the, the linchpin to it all. Right, right. Otis? But you two gentlemen have covered that part of it. I'm going to throw in something else. She's far more damaging than even the part to add to the prison industrial complex. This lady was actually elected to the state board in, in Alabama in 2001. Her term doesn't expire until 2017. She is an avid supporter of Common Core, which is the new standard that Arnie Duncan and uh, Barack Obama brought in to replace something I'm very familiar with, which actually started IEP as part of a, the educational program from the federal system, was George Bush's No No Child Left Behind. But I'm going to go a little further. This lady earned her undergraduate degree from Tuskegee University in 1969. And she's a graduate. Her graduate degree came from Alabama State University. And these are two HBCUs. And this woman is actually in bed with people that are trying to privatize public schools and earn a profit from them. And I'm going to go here with it. She is educated in HBCU that black people struggle and suffered to even make possible but now she wants to come in and rather than improve public school systems so every student can learn, she's in bed with private corporations like Bill, that's Bill Gates and Warren Buffett that are all doing this K-12 and the COP Center, Teachers for America. Those are all multimillionaires who have backed mainly females to privatize public schools and just leave people with no money with nothing. And this lady is a product of HBCUs. And she's been there for 16, 17 years now. So she hasn't advocated for the state to improve any schools, and she's on the state board in Alabama. See, that's why she has the dangers and of she color pushed coding. them to hire more black teachers, to upgrade the, the learning uh, equipment, to bring in top-notch uh, school systems where they can have computers and, uh, and laptops and all of that. None, she hadn't advocated for any of that, but she's concerned with taking a small group of people and moving them back to the days they were institutionalized and separate from the mainstream. That's what we have leading us. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Yes, it is. Yes, it is ridiculous. So what I'm going to do is uh, feature um, our writer of the 21st Century Underground uh, Railroad, and that will give Otis time to pull up another story that I think is important. He thought it was important. He said that there is something we need to get out in front of as abolitionists, and there's an article in the New Yorker which is titled How We Misunderstand Mass Incarceration. Well, I'm going to tell you how you misunderstand it off the top, and that's by calling it mass incarceration when it's slavery. Okay? So, what's that? All right. So, let's go ahead and go into our Underground Railroad writer of the 21st century I'm trying to get to that segment I'm sorry here we are alright and I do have a video that I'm uh, allowed to play on this story but our writer of the 21st century underground railroad is Frederick Clay he was wrongfully convicted of killing a Boston cab driver and he was released on Tuesday 
after spending nearly 40 years in prison. Suffolk County District Attorney Daniel Conley office filed a, and you tell me what this is, you sell, a no press qui? I, I'm not sure what that, it's a Latin term. I guess I could just Google that, right? And we can um, tell you what this, because it's, it's important to know these words. It's important to know these terms. So what that means is it's a formal notice of abandonment by a plaintiff or a prosecutor of all or part of a suit or action. All right, so he's basically saying we, we you know, we're not going to uh, pursue this prosecution anymore. So that ended for the prosecution right. of Frederick Clay after a reinvestigation by his office found that justice might not have been served. I lost 38 years of my life for something I didn't do, Clay, Clay said in court Tuesday morning. So let me go ahead and pull this up from E. NECN.com. This is a Massachusetts based paper. This is where this occurred. There's video loading up. He was just 16 years old when he was charged with first degree murder in the 1979 shooting wow. death of a 28 year old taxi driver, Jeffrey Boy Jane, in Boston's Roslindale neighborhood. He was convicted in 19. 19- 81 and sentenced to life without parole. So there we have a child. Again, this has been a recent issue that's been in the news. A child sentenced to life without parole, which I think is considered a human rights violation by the international community. Um, he says, I've been locked up since I was 16 years old. I lost 38 years of my life for something I didn't do. I'm now 53. So let's listen to this video. Okay, he didn't, ha- I thought he was going to speak there, but it was just him walking out of what looked like a criminal court building, uh, walking to the sounds of clapping, welcoming him to freedom. So, um, yeah, again, lots of issues right there. Uh, he is Frederick Clay, our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Welcome to freedom, Mr. Clay. Welcome to freedom. Welcome to freedom. Now you need reparations. You know, every time I hear those stories, you know, I'm I'm very happy, you know, for the, for, you know, for the for the newly released, and it just angers me that there's never any accountability. You know, 38 years of this man's life taken, and you know, the people who put him away. Who most likely knew he was he was innocent when they did it to put him away. They're sitting back collecting their pensions or whatever they're doing now. No accountability for this. Yeah, the way they got you know, him, it says Clay's attorney said Tuesday there were errors with the witness identification and that justice was not served. Kindly said some of the witnesses in the case were hypnotized to enhance their recollections before identifying Clay as a suspect that once common practice has since 
has since been largely discredited. Discredited. So yeah, they, yeah, man, it's crazy. But again, he's got his freedom, and he needs his reparations. All right, we um, have the next story ready to go. Yes. All right. Um, All right. Now, we need to go a little past 1 o'clock. Don't worry about that. I tell you what, Otis, we'll take an early station identification break, and then you could go into this story that you said we need to get in front of. There's some book coming out talking about people don't understand mass incarceration. So uh, hold off until we come back from the other side of the break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. And we'll be back on the other side of this quick station identification break. searching for the best in online black radio then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com helping you filter through the noise real talk black talk and welcome back to new abolitionist radio my name is scotty reed i'm joined on this uh broadcast by Otis Griffin and Yusef Hassan, new abolitionists in this 21st century where legalized slavery and human trafficking still exist. Uh, the regular hosts, our uh, brother and fellow abolitionist, Max Parthis, is on vacation, but not really, because unless you call it a vacation preparing for a Category 5 hurricane. So again, get prepared for this Hurricane Irma that's due to hit the East Coast. No way to project uh, what this thing's going to do. So if you're in uh, anywhere from Virginia to Florida, um, just check your survival supplies. And if you don't have any, now's as good as time as any to buy some stuff. All right, so Otis, you say there's this story that we need to get in front of as abolitionists. What's What you got? What I have is that I'm going to, before I start the story, I'm going to say why why I believe we have to get ahead of it. Books with good titles don't always end up being what you expect them to be. Take facts and then come to conclusions that actually lead to more destruction. This is a really long article, so I'm only going to pick parts of it. And then I honestly think once Max looks at it and you and Yusef get to look at it again, we may be actually actually be able to look at this thing in sections and explain to people how propaganda works. The title, How We Misunderstand Mass Incarceration, which is a fact. A new book argues that in the effort to fix the prison epidemic, we are addressing the wrong things and missing the true problem. Now, here comes the opening statement that you, as an abolitionist, you'll get it. Reformers are famously prey to the fantasism of reform. A sense of indignation and a good cause lead first to moral urgency and then soon afterward to repetition. 
we can all agree on that. There's no way you can reform, reform prison, whereby the reformers become captive to their own rhetoric, usually at a cost to their cause. He goes on to compare this crusade to alcoholism, but I'm going to skip to the part that we, we really get to. The fight against mass incarceration in the United States is no exception to the rule. In, in recent years, the horror of what Americans have done to other Americans, and particularly white Americans to black Americans, has led to a steady, engaged, anti-prison polemic, one with many authors singing more or less in unison. The numbers make their own case. 6.7 million people, mostly men, were un were were under correctional supervision during the year of 2015. More were then enslaved in antebellum America and more than resided in the archipelago in the height of Stalin's misrule. In a new book locked in, John Fife, a professor of law at Fordham, calls this quiet voice in which this writer has been a participant to talk about the guy from the, from the New Yorker, the standard story. As he sees it, he insists at first the root cause of incarceration is the racist persecution of young black men for drug crimes, which overpopulates the prison with nonviolent offenders. Then mandatory sentencing laws leave offenders serving long prison sentences for relatively minor crimes. This hugely expanded prison population, one that tracks in reverse the decline of actual crime, has led to commerce in caged men private prison contractors, and a specialized lobby in favor of prison construction, which in turn demands men to be fed into the system. This exploitation is further supported by local communities in which a new prison can replace a closing factory, providing one of the few reliable sources of decent incomes for working class, mostly white men. We can agree with all of that, but then he gets to another part. Cleft there by Cleft, let there be no doubt, is a reformer. Mass incarceration, he writes, is one of the biggest social problems in the United States today. Our sprawling prison system imposes staggering economic, social, political, and racial costs. Nonetheless, he believes the standard story, popularized in particular by Michelle Alexander in her influential book, The New Jim Crow, is false. We are in desperate need of reform, he insists, but we must reform the right things and address the true problem. And here it comes. Mm. He says, American prisons operate in such a complicated patchwork of federal, state, and local jurisdictions that it's hard to get a good handle on the numbers. He inspects the claim that as a predominantly nonviolent drug offenders, he says only one-fifth of the convicts or nonviolent, the rest, in fact, come from a wave of incarceration generally thought to have begun in 1980 and in three days later, three decades later. State prisons added something like another million, with half that growth coming from locking up more people convicted of violent crimes. He also says violent crimes are associated with drug dealing and are more difficult to prosecute than drug offenses themselves, which usually involve hard evidence rather than the testimony of witnesses. This argument sets off some suspicious skeptical alarms, since it seems 
cousin to the idea that we might as well lock them up for drugs as far as locking up for anything else. It is, of course, completely fair to debate the morality of using drug charges to tackle underlying violence. But Pleff observes he accepts that Black people are systemically denied access to more successful paths of economic stability, but he also makes a more complicated argument. It's not that the prohibition of drugs attracts crime, which produces violence. It's the violent thrives among young men deprived of a faith in their own upward mobility, making drug dealing an attractive business. In plain English, young men without a way out of poverty turn to gangs, and gangs always turn violent. So I'm going to stop it right there because there's more to this article where you can see what he does. He's telling us that the the statistics that we have that says that most of the prisoners are nonviolent, he's saying that's not true. It's only one-fifth of them. I don't know where he gets his data from, but this man is writing a book. So I'm going to spend the next couple of days finding out who granted him the money to be able to take time from Fordham to supposedly do this research and write this book. Because as you go through the article, you're going to find some more conflicting things that don't make sense. It sounds like to me they're trying to find a way to push reform of prison rather than abolition of slavery. Yeah, by making it seem like, oh, it's not that bad and and and, and what have you. I had somebody ask me on Twitter, somebody been following the Black Talk Radio Network since 2008, the year we was founded, and definitely is aware of New Abolitionist Radio, so I don't know why Chad want to ask me stupid questions about... Um, uh, people who commit violent crimes like murder and rape and and if they're in slavery and I, I you know look we're not calling for sla- I'm not there are some abolitionists but I'm not I can't explain what we're going to do with people who commit violent crimes because if somebody murdered one of my family members that I love and you don't put him somewhere and I don't feel like your so called punishment is just then I'm going to exact justice myself that's one of the reasons uh, the original concepts of a court and a community coming together to decide. But so I'm not there where I'm into the abolition of prisons, except for turning them into um, education centers where people can get job skills, get basic education. That, but they should be there. Those who have committed crimes against another individual, but. Excuse me. Seems to me he's also just trying to focus on men, which also which leaves out a whole lot of nonviolent females also caught up in the drug crimes and and under those crimes classified uh connected to the drug war. And so again, I mean even the federal government's own t- statistics show in the federal uh government, which is where everybody's talking about this reform and where the reform, if you really was talking about changing the prison system, then that has to start at the state levels because many of these states have autonomy when it comes to the operations. That's why they had a individual Department of Corrections. They may have some kind of guidelines, federal guidelines. They might have standards, but those aren't enforced if there are any. So again, this guy, if he's trying to say that 
most of the people in prison are in there behind violent crime. He again is is it doesn't line up with the data we've seen that's come out thus far. I mean, what do you think, Yusef? You know, I'm, uh, this, this whole mass incarceration thing, man, you know, it's, you know, I recognize it for what it is, you know, that they're really just trying to pull the rug out from under us, you know, by steering the conversation in another direction, you know, because we know if you remove the exception clause to the 13th Amendment, and that takes away the incentive to do the hunt. And with no incentive to do this hunt that they're on, you get rid of these private prisons where they're making all of these demands of putting beds in, like the article that we did, we uh, covered last week. That does away with this quote-unquote mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is just a symptom of a much bigger problem, which is slavery. You know, and they're trying to take everyone's attention away from it to make us call it something else, call it something else. You know, where when you start talking about, well, what's the solution to mass incarceration? You know, then they start coming up with all these alternative ideas that are other forms of incarceration, but more more accept, more socially acceptable, like house arrest and things of that nature, these day reporting facilities and everything, work release facilities. So that's what they're really that's what they're really trying to do. So they can keep the slavery going and everyone thinks that we've accomplished something if we if we just don't don't put as many people in jail. But that doesn't solve the slavery problem because whether they're sitting in a prison cell or they're going to a day reporting facility or they're in a halfway house or they're in a work release facility or they're on house arrest, it's all tied into this prison. It's, it's all tied into this slavery system. So yes. That's my take on this thing. And yeah. still producing income for somebody else exactly. based on bodies. Exactly. And it's actually more beneficial for them to have the people outside as opposed to sitting in a cell because now they can charge them. You know, they charge, inmates get inmates get charged when they first reach the county jails. Most county jails have a fee, a processing fee now, when they first enter the facility. But what happens with people that are on work release and halfway houses and, uh, you know, any, any <coughs> sorry, any type of parole or probation or in, or on the home monitoring, they actually have fees to pay, weekly fees to pay. And there's even a fee to pay the fee in New York and New Jersey. Just to go pay your fee, there's a profit, there's an additional $3.95 added to it just to pay that fee. And of course, we know failure to pay the fee puts you back, you know, in cage. So, oh yes. What they're trying to what they what they're trying to do is just map out this easier way to enslave people, more socially accepted way, more quote unquote humane way of doing it. I mean, reducing the numbers without ending slavery, compromising. Well, and, and the other thing is, they shift the burden from 
caging you and paying for AC and a guard to your family. They're not going to leave you on the street, but they're the ones going to then have to feed you, uh, keep shelter over your head because you already have the strike against you for employment. There's no path to employment. So they're going to increase their profit for monitoring you with some kind of electronic gadget or some edict from the court that you show up at a prescribed place and they don't care how you get there because the place is not necessarily in your neighborhood. It's usually outsourced to a private company that's sitting somewhere that's 10 to 15 or 20 miles away from you. And whether it takes you three buses or a a relative to drive you there is not their problem. You don't show up, as you have said, you're back in the system with another one. I mean, any premise that doesn't start with the 13th Amendment and acknowledging that slavery was never abolished and they're using slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for crime, and that explains historically the black codes and convict leasing and 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 just, you know, the especially when you introduce the private prison slavery aspect to it and and you know, just just the increase in the world's largest population of prisoners, captive labor or commodified bodies. So if his premise doesn't even acknowledge that and you're just saying it's mass incarceration, we got too many people in prison, we can control their bodies, but we don't have to put them in prison, let's control them outside. That's what it sounds like you guys are talking about in terms of the monitoring and, and making money off of that as well. Yeah, it's just a lighter form, less restrictive form of slavery, but it's still slavery. So he's calling something Absolutely. mass incarceration that he needs to wake up and realize is really slavery or whoever's writing this book. But that's all I have to yeah. say. say, say that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. it because mass incarceration is just dealing with the actual person being confined, but they're not even factoring in all the other people. I glanced through the entire article and it's really only two sentences that I really support out of this entire thing. So he says, nearly everyone in prison ended up there by signing a piece of paper in a dingy conference room in a county office building. And then he also states, you know, that uh, journalist Amy Bach once watched the overburdened public defender plead out 48 clients in a row in a single courtroom. See, that's what's feeding this beast of slavery, where right. people stick them, you know, their they're fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments are all being violated. That's and, not mass incarceration. That's slavery. Right now, you see why I say they take elements of truth, solid truth, and by the time they finish the narrative. You think on the surface they're on your side, but the truth is he gives it up with his first words, reform. There is no way to reform slavery. These are you can't exactly. do it. It's agents exactly. of confusion. It, that's all it is, introducing confusion. And there should be no confusion about slavery, the 13th Amendment. I would hope to think that eighth, people on, with an eighth grade reading level could read that and tell and be able to come out of that paragraph so a couple of sentences and tell you slavery was never abolished. So well, I'll, I'll say one other thing, Scotty. I've been doing a lot of research since I came on here and started listening to you in mass for five years. I believe it, and I've seen it from several different education uh, studies, that 
only 20% of Americans can read, comprehend a written paragraph above the eighth grade level. Really? That 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 has been the consensus. I, and that explains to me why articles like this can be written and people can't go back and parse through and figure out what part doesn't make sense. Literally 20% of American adults can comprehend a written paragraph. Hmm. Well, uh, we want we want to keep it moving. Uh, we do okay. got mind, body, and spirit coming up tonight, so that means we got to be off air no later than nine fifty-five. So uh, we're at okay. nine thirteen now, and I'm gonna go ahead and cover one of our regular segments called "For Freedom's Sake: A History of Rebellion." And tonight we're taking a look at the Adventure Rebellion, and we will be remembering this is just one of the many revolts against slavery that occurred on ships transporting Africans to other parts of the world. On October the 5th, 1764, the New Hampshire ship Adventure, captained by John Miller, was successfully taken by its quote-unquote cargo. The enslaved Africans on board revolted while the ship was anchored off the coast, and all but two of the crew, including Captain Miller, had succumbed to disease. Another successful slave revolt occurred six days later after the ship Little George had left the the Guinea coast. The ship contained 96 enslaved Africans, 35 of which were male. The slaves attacked, again, I'm, I'm reading other people's writing, and I try to correct the words as I'm reading it, and then I'm actually finding out that these are several such revolts. So we're we're featuring, I guess, several different rebellions that occurred on ships, transporting Africans to other parts of the world, practicing slavery. Um, now, again, going back, the ship carried 96 victims of slavery, 35 of which were male. The victims of slavery attacked in the early hours of the morning, easily overpowering the two men on guard, the victims of slavery were able to get one of the cannons on board loaded and fired it at the crew. Oh, man, I guess they were paying attention to them weapons them people were using against them. Uh, after taking control of the ship, they sailed it up the Sierra Leone River and escaped. After having defended themselves for several days below decks with muskets, a uh, crew lowered a small boat into the river to escape. Uh, let me see. After nine days of living off of raw rice, they were rescued. Talking about the slave catchers, which they could have got caught. All right. So I'm sorry that sounded kind of scattered. I thought it was focusing on one. But, hey, there's a lot of research out there. I'm sure there's more research and more information out there on these individuals. I think there were about four or five there. Uh, they were talking about where the rebellions occurred on the ocean because we used to like to think of the rebellions or where we really are reading about the rebellions that occurred on land once you got here and not so much about, hey, they were rebelling ever since they were captured in Africa looking for ways to escape. So I'm really digging the ones that, that took that cannon <laughs> loaded it and fired it at the crew and uh, was able yeah. to uh, take control of the ship and, and get away. All right, so uh, salute, salute to 
and let me just read this part right here. There are 485 recorded instances of victims of slavery revolting on board these ships. A few of these ships endured more than one uprising during their career. So I guess the lesson to learn from that is uh, sink the ship. All right. All right. So if you can, you know, if you can uh, on your way to freedom. So salute, salute to all of those who rebelled on these ships. That's right. Salute. Look, I'm from the South. I'm here in Virginia. Growing up in the barbershops, the older men told tales of what their parents told them. So it doesn't surprise me that America went out of his way to scrub facts out of the history book. They like to tell you the Negroes were happy and they were they were docile, but any man who's been through the just the phase that we're going through now with modern slavery that never ended, you know no man is going to stand to be shackled and stolen from his homeland and don't put up some type of resistance. It just never made sense. <laughs> Goes against the uh, human spirit, especially exactly. if you know you innocent and you exactly. you know this is unjust. All right, so I'm, I'm yourself. I'm gonna go through one quick story. Um, we may end up with some a little bit of extra time. Again, love to hear from the listeners. Uh, get some field reports if you have anything to report. Any upcoming events associated, upcoming abolitionist events, things we need to be mm-hmm. made aware of. Please let us know. Give us a call at eight six six five ten ninety twenty five. Again, that is. 866-510-9025 and I, while Yousel prepares um, for his segment on the constitution and you he got has a story coming out of Oregon with a governor signing a gun confiscation law um, I'm going to quickly tell you about a story which is about a film that recently came out and again as we were reading about Benjamin Lay I think he said he put out over 200, maybe 300 pamphlets, abolitionist pamphlets, uh, raging against the machine of slavery. That's media. That's a form of media. Media is a tool. It's a weapon. In fact, Malcolm X said it's the most uh, uh, powerful entity on the face of the planet because it controls the minds of the masses. And Black Talk Media Project was founded on that principle. And many people acknowledge we need to be more in control, especially non-white black people need to be in control of our stories. And, you know, so it's very important that we support independent media. So there's a film that's coming out or has came out called Crown Heights. Now, this comes from a local uh, outlet um, out of Charlotte, Queen Q City. Metro.com that stands for Queen City Metro.com, Charlotte, North Carolina. And but this is actually uh getting a lot of media exposure in media all over the nation. But Crown Heist is the true story of bias in the US justice system. Now, again, I'm reading other people's words, but this is by Paul McFadden Jr. came out today. Uh, It says that there are 2.5 million prisoners in the United States. 120,000 are innocent people. Now, I don't know how he came to those figures, 
But some people would say it's way more than that. If 60%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, if there is one thing that is all too familiar in the black community, it is the injustices imposed through the American criminal justice system. U.S. presidents for generations have enforced tough on crime laws that have sent incarcerated rates skyrocketing. Well, guess what? Many U.S. presidents also enforce. Uh, that would be slavery. So decades of legislation such as Ronald Reagan's war on drugs and Bill Clinton's three-strike rule have made it difficult for people of color to be released from prison. Crown Heights, which opens September the 9th, tells the true story of Connor Wilkins, an 18-year-old Trinidadian native wrongfully convicted of murder in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn during the spring of 1980. Wilkins ends up being sentenced to life in prison. See, this is international slavery, what we're talking about here. This man wasn't even a citizen of the United States. He was uh, uh, from Trinidad. So his unbelievable tale was once featured in a 2005 segment of NPR's This American Life. The, the film begins with Wilkins, p played by Lakeith Stanfield, crashing a car he's stolen for a chop shop where he works. It was the latest incident in the troubled past that ends with Wilkins being labeled a criminal by New York police. As the film progresses, we begin to see a more complete study of Wilkins, a soft-spoken and loving young man who tries to win the affection of his neighbor, Antoinette, played by Natalie Paul. This is no redemption story, rather it's a drama-fueled nightmare. Unrelated to the initial car crash, Wilkins is later wrangled into a police car in question for the murder of a young Brooklyn Knight. The film highlights the egregious actions taken by NYPD slave catchers as they force a 15-year-old who never saw the actual shooting to identify Wilkins as the killer. With Wilkins convicted and locked away, his childhood friend, Calvin C.K. King, dedicates his life to clearing Wilkins' name. The drama heats up as the film details the struggles the two men face because they lack the necessary resources, money, competent lawyers, etc., to reverse Wilkins' conviction. When Wilkins asks his friend why he continues to fight on his behalf, King replies, because it could have easily been me. So... Um, it goes on. It really doesn't really. I don't. Well, we wouldn't want to give away um, the plot and yeah. everything, but it's based on a true story. The true story of this young man, Connor Wilkins, a 18-year-old man from Trinidad who got uh, uh, sucked into uh, United States slavery. Of based on the 13th Amendment as punishment for a crime. Doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. It's slavery is mm -hmm. the punishment. Uh, guys, any thoughts or comments before we go into Yousef's uh, segment? Well, Scott, all I can say is what I keep saying every time I get a chance to be vocal on, on this platform. That's the hardest part to get non-believers to understand. There is no such thing as they did it. This system has too many people that will railroad it. This talking about feeding the system, their ways just like we talked about the educator and the the cops that are bad. But this system is set up. You don't have to do wrong to be enslaved and encaged in this system. That's just how violent it is. It's vile and it's to the point that profit is far more important than being uh, 
what do you call it, moral or perfectionist, it's made to enslave. It doesn't care about justice. And people need to understand that. Absolutely. Yourself? You know, the OG Otis just hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. The bottom line is they need to fill beds and they're willing to do any and everything to to get convictions. You know, and and again, tying back into today's writer, uh, Mr. Clay, you know, as long as there's no accountability and they know that there's right. gonna be no accountability. Right. You know, then they know that they can go along with, with reckless abandon. I mean, time and time and time and time and time again, all we hear is forced confessions, you know, witness tampering, falsified evidence. We hear this stuff over and over and over and over again. And I can't even recall any case that mentions anything about, you know, investigations opened into prosecuting those officers or those prosecutors or those judges that were involved in it because they're all in on the con. Exactly. That's, I mean, the, boy, the statement when King told him, because it could have easily been me. It's so simple that people don't want to get the bedrock truth of that, that you don't necessarily have control over whether or not you end up in that system. The wrong person in blue or with a badge picks you as the victim. You'll be just like Michael Bennett was when he was laid on the concrete, minding his own business. You don't have to do wrong to be scarpled up in this system. And it's hard to get people to understand that. I mean, it's in just simple words, and I understand sometimes things aren't as simple as uh, some people paint them, I don't want to paint the slave paint slavery and all its tentacles into these various institutions and 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 uh, dark alleys and what have you, boardrooms and what have you. But what you all just described, though, is a organized crime against humanity, and that's another. Yeah. We want to use metaphors to describe slavery. There you go, right there, organized crime against humanity and many of this stuff that we're reporting on is in violation of international laws even though you know I I look to the creator as the highest law and just understanding that my rights end where another human beings begins and and so yeah Um, yourself let's go ahead and take an early break then when we come back Uh on the other side I want to give a great uh, shout out to Big Diesel from Chicago, a member of the BTR community. Join us at btrcommunity.com. He's joining us tonight in the Black Talk Radio Uber Conference chat. and um, But he says he's usually at work, but he's on vacation, and he's catching New Abolitionist Radio Live. So so glad that you could catch us live, Big Diesel, and uh, appreciate Absolutely. the information Thanks you share in, in. in BTR community so we're going to take a station identification break we're entering into the last 20 minutes of the show uh when we come back on the other side we have uh you self segment the constitution and you all right so um 
If we have time after his segment, give us a call, express anything you would like to express um, on our program. That telephone number is 866-510-9025. Hit star star to put yourself in the caller's queue. We'll see you and bring you up. All right, we'll be back on the other side. This is New Abolitionist Radio. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. The Black Talk Media Project funds the use of new media technology in efforts to restore independent black voices to the myriad of issues affecting Afro-descendant people all over the planet. If media can control the minds of the masses, as Malcolm X once said, then you must ask yourself, who is in control of the media targeting the masses of black people today? Help bring back independence, self-determination, and respect for black culture in the production of global media by joining the effort to crowdfund new black media for the new millennium. Visit blacktalkmediaproject.org for more information on how you can invest in public black radio for the masses. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio Broadcasting every Wednesday night at starting at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on the Black Talk Radio Network. Your home for new black media for the new millennium. So we are moving into one of our last uh, segments of the broadcast and that will be uh, conducted by our abolitionist comrade, yourself, focusing on different segments or amendments of the United States Constitution. Remember, uh, this program for the past five years, we've really been trying to point your attention to the 13th Amendment, but it's important to know all these amendments. Again, people need to read. We were talking earlier about the reading level of Americans, and anybody who reads the, just the 13th Amendment should be able to to comprehend that slavery was never abolished. You know, that's not discounting all of the propaganda lies that's reinforced through movies, television, popular print, news media. You know, nobody's really being honest about slavery still existing in the United States. All right. So, but it's important to know the other amendments. Because sometimes you can, you know, you can use one amendment to attack another amendment or I don't know, but I'm glad you self is focusing on that because not enough, I feel, of the black community understands this document. All right, you self, brother, go ahead and take it away. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, of course, as I always start out the segment you know, with the reading of the 13th Amendment, because I'm going to keep doing that so everyone can have this memorized. Like, anyone who wants to, or who claims to be an abolitionist should know this by heart. These 47 words. 
neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punished, except as a punishment for crime wherever the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That is the 13th Amendment. And as we'll go through every segment each week, we'll see how all of these other amendments are uniquely tied in to the 13th Amendment. You know, a lot of it is not, you know, obvious. So something that jumped out at me earlier this week was the Oregon governor signed a gun confiscation bill into law. And I'm not going to really read the article. What the basic premise is, is that a person, well, first of all, let me, let me uh, read the Second Amendment, and then we'll, then we'll get into that as to what the Second Amendment said. So, Did you read the, the 13th? I'm sorry, I might have got scatterbrained, but did you read the 13th Amendment yet? Yes, I did. I started with that. Oh, okay, my bad. So, uh, <coughs> the Second Amendment... Hold on, what's going on here? Hold on a second. I think something kind of like skipped around on me. Yeah, the 13th Amendment isn't very long, so it can be hard to miss if you're not, somebody's reading it and you're not really focused in on what they're, man, it's over. Did he read it yet? It's not all, it's not buckets of words. It's, it's in, uh, I think Max said it's a hundred and something words. No, 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 47 words. Oh, 47 words. For, 47 hey, you can, words. 47 words. 47 words. Yeah. If, if if those words that's were characters, still, you could get it all on Twitter. But are, are you ready yourself? Yeah. You find your place? Yeah, I'm ready. I, I, yeah, I, w- I wanted to get into the Second Amendment. So the okay. Second Amendment states, you know, the, the portion that I want to focus on is where it says the well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, we know that this uh, was enacted in 1791, so obviously chattel slavery was still in effect at that time. So we automatically know that the Second Amendment, when it was enacted, only applied to whites in the country. So we're gonna we're gonna use that as the, as the basis as to getting into this article. So this article, and it also follows up that it also happened in the Virgin Islands earlier this week as well, where they've already enacted the gun confiscation program. This one where she's just signing a a bill into law, they haven't enacted it yet, but it's actually active in the Virgin Islands already. And the premise is they're using mental health as the premise for this violation of the Second Amendment rights, where they're stating that an officer or or a family member can file a petition with the court to say, basically, I don't think this person has the mental health capacity to to uh, to possess a possess a firearm. So we already know how that plays out, to where you can basically make this claim 
and they can classify who or what constitutes someone having a mental health issue. So that's where they're trying to go with this. And we have to bear in mind that when the Second Amendment was, when, when I'm sorry, when uh, the 13th Amendment was enacted along with the Emancipation Proclamation, I have to come up with some other name for that because it's, it, it didn't emancipate. You know, what it, what it actually did was put a stamp on the 13th Amendment to just say, okay, this is where it's it's going now. Slavery is abolished except this punishment is a crime. And in, 19, in 1871, you had the National Rifle Association formed, and ironically, it's the same year that the Ku Klux Klan was also formed, 1871. So we're talking just a few years after the 13th Amendment was enacted. Well, a, a, a and, point, point, and quick also point of the, history. Basically, the start of Reconstruction when black folks actually had legal recourse and were prosperous in the yeah, South. Well, now, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get into that. Hey, you so said, though, to... another thing about uh, that's important about that year, 1871, I think the Klan was actually started earlier than that because the Klan Act of 1871, President Ulysses S. Grant, former U Union general, used it to destroy them and impanel... Yeah. Uh, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Okay, 1865, right. the, Klan, the Klan, the Klan started in 1865 and through the... Right after the passage the, of the 13th is when they started, right? Right. And in 1871, that's when the Anti-Klan Act was signed, or they also refer to it as the Civil Rights Act of 1871. So what happened in uh, April of 1873, there was, a, there was a massacre considered, it's called the Colfax Massacre, and sometimes they misname it the Colfax Riot. It was yes. the Colfax Colfax that's C-O-L-F-A-X massacre where you had down in Louisiana approximately 150 black men were murdered by white Southern Democrats. And of course they were Klan members who did this. And what's significant about this, the people who committed these murders were actually put on, they were put on trial, but because of the ruling of the 14th Amendment, and the Second Amendment, these people were later released and not charged. And their reasoning behind it is saying that the 14th Amendment and the Second Amendment, first they, first they defined that the Second Amendment is only dealing with the government's right to not infringe upon individual rights, and same with the 14th Amendment. But they didn't, they said that it didn't have to do with individual rights, an individual imposing upon the rights of another individual. I know it doesn't make sense, because it didn't make sense to me. It was a case called uh, United States versus Cruise in 1876, that the protections of the 14th Amendment and the Second Amendment did not apply to, act, to the actions of individuals, but only to the actions of state government. So that's bullshit. That's, that that's that, man. Yeah. Anyway, 
This yeah. group that went out. This group that went out to to kill them was they they did it to keep the blacks of that time from being able to vote and keeping them from bearing arms. So that was, those were the two main goals. In summary, I don't want to just be worried about it. Their main goal was to keep them from bearing arms and also to keep them from being able to vote. Well, so, explain this to me, though. Now, the Klan Act, I mean, excuse me, not the Klan Act, the 14th Amendment uh, is what converted emancipated victims of slavery to so-called citizens under the jurisdiction of the United States government, if I'm not mistaken. That's the 14th Amendment, is it not? That's now, the first sec. That's, that's, that's section that's, one. Yeah, that's that's, that's one section one. It. Yeah. Now. And you know what? I I, I should have read that as well. Now the other yeah, sections, that's, that's though, what? yourself that I'm that I want to point out is that the other sections deal with Confederates, former Confederates, uh, criminals, treasonous people, and it prohibited right. them from actually holding any kind of public office and uh, you couldn't get them any kind of aid, any kind of thing. So even with the erection of these monuments, that can be seen as a violation of the 14th Amendment because that, you know, when you put them up. And so, but anyway, what we're talking about here is not a matter of we don't have laws in place that's supposed to bring about a more just society or was meant to protect newly crowned American citizens, former victims of slaves, if they weren't already, you know, free black citizens. Um, um, just a total ignoring of that or a false misinterpretation. And if you don't have the guns to enforce the true interpretation of that, I mean, it's, it's, it's just crazy to me how right in our faces. Again, if we read the Constitution, we can see that many of the things that they are doing right in our faces is in violation of this so-called document that they proclaim to be the supreme law of the land. And, and so look at them other sections of the 14th Amendment in that yeah. in that context. I'm uh, sorry, Otis? How, and you, and you, would say, you would say, how did they even get lumped into the same amendment? Because they have nothing to do with the same thing. You know, it's, you know, in my opinion, the Constitution really needs to be rewritten because at the time it was written, it didn't include all persons in the United States. It only included one class of people. So it has to be completely rewritten because... Obviously, through their practice, it, it doesn't cover everyone, you know. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to point out, just going back to this article, you know, when you start allowing a law enforcement officer or a family member or a household member, you know, to uh, make a mental health determination, you know, although they're mistaken or whatever, you know, you start infringing upon the person's Second Amendment rights, and like you like you just stated, it takes away the person's the ability ability to be able to defend themselves. You know, so when you just have one group of people, because you can see where they're going to go with this, we're dealing with a demonic mind state. Right, we're dealing with terrorists. All they have to do is start classifying the people that they want to incarcerate. Start classifying them all as mental health. We saw from the article with the school board that special, special 
needs that they want to institutionalize. And everything is about institutionalizing people. Once you take a person's ability to defend themselves away, then you can do anything to them. You know, they have no 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 right to defend. So now just someone can say, well, I think he has a mental health problem. Let me petition the court so his weapons can be taken away from him. And it was even mentioned in here that these weapons can be taken in secret. Like it's not like they show up to the door and, and say, we're here to confiscate your guns. You know, they can they can take them in secret, you know, basically break in your home and take these weapons. You know, so this is something that's coming down the line. I think that they're just using Oregon as a test market, you know, and they, they probably have a specific area already mapped out, probably some poor white area that they want to go ahead and test this at to see how everything goes with it before they take it to the larger population. They've already done it with us because they do it under the guise of turning a weapon to get $50. You know, and you see every time they do it, you know, they line up all the weapons on TV, you know, because the whole idea is they, they do it under the guise of, oh, we're doing it to make the streets safer, when the reality is they're disarming the people and they're taking away their ability to defend themselves because if we want to talk, although we know it's slavery, but if they want to say mass incarceration, we've only seen the tip of the iceberg of what they're really trying to do. Yeah, slave codes, you know? um, because at one time, victims of slavery, this was back in the 1600s, were permitted to have firearms. And I even read stories about George Washington allowing some of his victims of slavery to be able to hunt. Uh, of course, the master gonna take his portion of what he didn't work for or hunt for. But so, but uh, the slave codes did introduce laws that prohibit. I want to say I have to look them up. Just look up the Virginia slave codes doing in the 1600s. I think it was 1680. I'm not sure, but it restricted uh, victims of slavery and free black colonists. Not, not you know, victims of slavery from owning firearms. So that's oh, going, that's going that's, back that's a, before. That's absolutely what happened. Yeah. So that was like standard yeah, that's, practice. That's factual. Yeah. Otis, did you yeah, have anything true. you wanted to add before as we get ready uh, to wrap it up well, and, I, and prepare our I final wanna, comments? I want to just say, when people don't remember history, Yusef just showed you they're using mental health now to take away the guns. But the truth is, Reagan is the one who made it plain that people who with mental health uh, problems didn't need to be locked up in hospitals, so they saved the healthcare people money based on you being crazy. But now you being out here crazy means you can't have a gun. So what's that thing you say about Malcolm X and the power of the media? Have you hating? Like what's the exact quote? <laughs> Got it. Oh yeah, I'm. I got it. it uh, <laughs> you kind of broke up a little bit. Yeah. Um, the media is the most powerful entity on the face of the planet. It controls the minds of the masses. It can make the innocent look guilty, and the guilty looks innocent, and that's power. And that's what I'm saying. Now, someone can arbitrarily claim to authorities that you have a mental problem, and be rather than you go before the court and they decide if it's true or not. They just come in and take your firearms, guilty, and now you have to prove you're innocent. 
That's crazy. Yep. And and you know, just to mention that this governor is a Democrat. Oh yes. You know, <laughs> you know it, it's 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 funny how well we're not even going to get into that Democratic thing, that Democratic Republican thing, because it's all you know, same pants, different pockets. That's all. Well, I want to say quickly when you brought up the Colfax massacre, the truth behind that because that's one of them that I studied too. That was during the Reconstruction, the early part of Reconstruction, and blacks had actually taken over that little town because there were about 2,400 black people and only 2,200 white people. And they won. The, the, the majority of the party at that time were black Republicans. When they won, the white people didn't accept the election, and that's what ended up leading to their yeah. assault in the courthouse. And the state Absolutely. of Louisiana didn't come in and side with the victors in the election, the black people, they actually sided with, at that time it was called the white chameleons and the KKK. They actually got ready to fire cannon on the courthouse, which was actually won by black people, but the white minority came in with the Klan and <laughs> massacred the black people. Yeah, in fact, yeah. they say that many of them were killed after they had already surrendered. Right, right. So that goes to show you the power of the government. It was never, it's never about uh, uh, who won in the majority rule. This country is built on suffering of black people and subjugating yeah. black people. In, in fact, I see in the note here that uh, the state militia was actually the black people. Right. In that area. <laughs> So the the Second Amendment was established for the footer to have a militia, and here this group of unruly whites came along and killed them off, and then the court sanctions it sanctioned it by not uh, not convicting them. Yeah, just like they sanctioning the terrorists today. Um, so you know, no this, change. This what's that oh, this Scott has done several articles on it. The, the, the KKK had never been called terrorists. Yeah, they terrorists, Antifa man. That showed up in the street over the last nine months is all of a sudden terrorists because they because they're fighting back. Yeah, you know. So uh, this is uh, all throughout U.S. history. The U.S. government sanctions slavery, and they have paramilitary groups like the Ku Klux Klan, all throughout history, this is state-sponsored terrorism of American citizens. And that's why I say any form of reparations ought to include that uh, descendants of, uh, of Africans who were victims of slavery shouldn't even have to pay taxes. You know what I'm saying? Man. So anyway, we come to the end of the broadcast. Uh, I want to thank both yourself and Otis for joining us tonight. Again, keep the part this family and all those uh, families that may lie in the path of Hurricane Irma in your prayers. Keep them covered and so that no harm comes to them. Hopefully, they're preparing by doing more than praying. And so, people, take these, take these sort of things serious. Um, we I want to toss it back to the guys and allow them to give their uh, final comments. Uh, you have a minute to go ahead and... Uh, 
say good night to I, our listeners and leave something on their mind. Uh, we'll start with I you, Otis. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure to be able to sit here and talk to you about a very important subject, and I look forward to a day, hopefully in the near future, when we celebrate waking people up and getting the 13th abolished, the exception clause out of the Constitution. It's been a pleasure. You, sir? Yes, sir. Likewise. It's just been a pleasure uh, spending the last two hours with you gentlemen. It seemed like it was five minutes, man. You know, so we thank everyone for tuning in. And, you know, as uh, a brother Johanan would say, I have to sign off with his call. You know, peace and abolition is death to the oppressors. Well, again, thank you. Thank both of you gentlemen for uh, filling in capably. As guest host on New Abolitionist Radio, we, you know, definitely in the future got to include more of our activists or featuring them as guests. Met a lot of people in D.C., um, heard a lot of people call in to our show on the Review of D.C., so, you know, media is important. Uh, going from our abolitionists and a couple of our abolitionists in profile to, uh, uh, what was his name, Benjamin Lay? Um, Benjamin Yates, yes. Yeah. Um, using media by creating pamphlets and passing them out, calling for in the slavery and how the system itself uses media to keep people enslaved. Media is very important, and so we have to produce as much as uh, pro-abolitionist content as possible and keep pushing it out there to the masses because I believe we're making an impact. I, I believe it was more it's more people woken up to the fact of the 13th Amendment legalizing slavery um, today than were five years ago before we launched New Abolitionist Radio. So media is a very powerful entity because it can I don't like to use the word control but change some minds. Alright, so thank you for joining us tonight as Max would would say now. Just as soon as I said that, I'm almost forgetting his sign off. I'm I'm under so much pressure right here. But what would Max, as Max would say, you know, um, uh, man, I didn't forgot it. Sorry, Max. Do any of you guys recall Max's sign off? Oh, oh man, what does Max normally say? So we can finally know peace. Yeah. Remember. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I got it. Abolition is a reason for revolution so we can finally know peace. 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 Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared. If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, 